Welcome back to Change Cultivators, and I'm here with my co-host, Patrick Fitzmaurice. Hello, Roz. Patrick and I are talking to Josh Reynolds today. Josh is the founder and CEO of Rob Roy Consulting. Josh, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So Josh has a very long and rich history in the the tech space and the innovation space. He's worked as a trusted PR advisor to many of the world's leading innovative and disruptive brands from his early days at Gartner to WPP with Martin Sorrell and Blankenotis and uh, Helen Knowlton. Um, he's now the CEO of Rob Roy Consulting, as I mentioned, and today they are launching hot off the press their new global research findings around which marketing channels most impact B2B tech purchases. So our listeners, you are going to hear the results of the research today hot off the press. Josh, but before we dive into that, I'd love you to just tell our listeners a little bit about what got you interested in the innovation and dis- disruption space all those years ago. What was it that said to you, this is where my passion lies? Well, the truth is I happily discovered it quite by accident. Um, and I had originally trained as a criminal prosecutor. That was my first line of work. And I spent a very short amount of time uh, prosecuting law enforcement for corruption. And that is not why I had gone to law school. And I very quickly decided that I wanted a a change of career. And at the time, uh, there were a number of antitrust uh, investigations being made into major corporations, including Microsoft. And so at the time, I decided to to trade up on my legal expertise. And I joined Gartner. And I helped them analyze various legal trends in exchange for a tech education. And the part of it that really stuck with me is that innovation was all about helping people solve problems. But working in a research firm, I quickly learned people don't trust numbers. People don't trust data. Uh, It was a Nobel Prize winning economist who once said, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. And I began to realize that oftentimes people were buying our research just to prove themselves right. The part of the job I liked the most was helping people understand how do I solve this problem? And most importantly, what real problem do I have? The part about innovation and disruption that I enjoy the most is helping people ask themselves smarter questions and the trust you have to earn along the way. Because think about it, the only thing worse than the wrong answer is the right answer to the wrong question. The amount of trust it takes to help someone find the most valuable question really enjoyed that part of the process and that's what's led me throughout my career yeah that's that's fascinating although it it poses a question in my head as we kind of dig into the insights and research you have because people don't trust insights and research is what i could have heard you say um but we're going to spend our time talking about insights and research that you guys have uncovered so you know, give us a quick snapshot like why why did you guys choose to do this research and i think it's year two of this research and kind of why repeat it as an ongoing study so just give us a rationale of why does this research even need to exist before i ask a couple questions about what you may be seeing absolutely Uh, This is research that actually we had run uh, years ago at Blanc and Otis, and it was quite simple. We wanted to be able to give our clients the best advice as to how to spend their budget, where to spend their money. 
if you're trying to win over a uh, a client or a customer in, 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 the, in the tech space or anyone who has an innovative solution of any kind, really, where do you spend your time and energy? Where do you spend your money? Is it with technology publications? Is it with advertising? Is it with social? Is it with analysts? We wanted to be that trusted advisor to our clients. After leaving Blanca Notice for a few years, we realized no one else had continued that research. It had been about five years since the last study was done, and so much had changed. So in October of last year, we ran this research, but we also noticed something new that we wanted to ask about that we had not asked about before, and that was about trust. The headlines had been replete with investigations and, and, and concerns around data privacy, and people were beginning to question the tech royalty of Facebook and Apple and Netflix and Google and everyone else, and were beginning to get concerned with, wait a second, what are they actually doing to our society? What are they actually doing with our data? Do they, in fact, own the asset they're trading on? And it led to record levels of distrust in the media. And we were curious to know, how did that distrust translate into day-to-day -day business? Which is why, for the first time ever, we asked the question, to what extent do you think technology vendors are being honest with you when that salesperson first walks in the door, when that marketing message first shows up on your screen? And, uh, and that's why it was necessary, because there was still this need for using our time and energy really effectively, but also a need for understanding what kind of barriers are we facing in earning people's trust? Yeah. yeah and I, I assume it even got more aggressive as, as, as COVID happened. And, you know, one of the hot spaces where people ran to this year is reinvesting and over-investing and heaving up technology investments and data sets investments and all of that kind of stuff. So I assume it must be fascinating to kind of think about what the impact of, of a global pandemic on business operating environments where technology has even more rapidly been pushed front and center. That's absolutely right, Patrick. I mean, the 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 need for the study to be repeated this year was the entire planet went through a wormhole. Uh, so many just things that you take for granted changed. And, and even out here in California, uh, not only was there a pandemic, we had wildfires that changed the color of the sky. We didn't see blue sky for 32 days in a row here in the Bay Area. And for four days, it was orange, bright orange in the middle of the day. There were no certainties anymore. And we really felt compelled to test again what do we think we know? And where is that trust? How do we earn that? Where is that trust? And uh, and so that's why we had to ask the questions again, what changed and what different? Because almost everyone is re-questioning, you know, what is that playbook I had before and does it still apply here in the upside down? Yeah. And on the trust element, I know you guys also had some interesting takeouts. So it's, you know, trusting technology firms, but some of the data also showed the increase in peer counsel. So people making business decisions, going to their peers in other com companies to ask before they make decisions. So the trust is not only in a vendor, but the trust is also now in that ecosystem and that network growing. And um, you guys also had some interesting uh, results on business purpose is when you're picking a, a vendor or a partner, it's what does that business stand for? So I'd love you to just give us a little bit more color around that peer council and why you think um, decision makers are now being more vulnerable to open themselves up to speaking to people who in the past might have been their competition, but they're now going, hold on, can you hold my hand? Let's do this together. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's exactly uh, that's exactly the right spirit. We're, we're we're realizing that we're all suddenly being forced to adopt change much faster, and we trust people whom we know and whom we know understand what we're going through. So we talk to people with the same title, same kinds of responsibility. And you're right, Roz, that that need for peer counsel has increased slightly after uh, the pandemic. In October of last year, 67% of the 500 US B2B tech decision makers we talked to said that counsel from peers was either the most valuable or the second most valuable when deciding who to invite to a pitch. And that um, that jumped up by 7%, and that was 74% just this last month. When it comes to deciding which vendor to ultimately pick, again, last year, 67% said, you know, talking to my peers, it's it's either the most important or second most important uh, you know thing on my list. And again, that number jumped up about 8% to 75%. Uh, just this last month. But the really interesting finding on peer counsel was the most valuable thing I'm getting from my peers is not what vendor to pick. It's what problem to solve. When it comes on how when it comes to where to allocate my budget, which business problem to prioritize first, last year, 71% said word of mouth from peers is going to impact which categories I spend my money on, what business problems I'm going to tackle. And that jumped by 8% uh, this last month as well. So we're talking with peers, not only on just what decisions to make, but about what problems to solve. Because let's be honest, everyone right now is overwhelmed. Everybody yeah, and I think and that also plays into, you know, we've had some great people on from a marketing perspective on the show and, you know, the whole world of sponsorship and marketing and all of that's changing now with COVID. And, you know, what I'm hearing from you, this is just another reinforcement, that word of mouth is becoming far more important for companies to put their money behind, making sure those influencers are saying the right thing rather than running ads on TV or, or social media or whatever it is. That's absolutely true. And, and the research also reveals what it is that generates that word of mouth. Uh, the study that we ran, we actually asked people, what is it that motivates you to share word of mouth, to be an authentic, organic recommender? What's, you know, what gets you to do that? And one of the most important things to do is to find the question that you want to put out into the market. Um, we call it the viral question. It's the it's the how do I, and then insert problem definition here. You know, way back in the day when we were working with LinkedIn, the question was, how do I become more productive? How can I tap into the power of the collective to become a more productive member of the workforce? Um, and then the other question we asked was, how LinkedIn are you? You know, if Google was a verb, we wanted it LinkedIn to be an, ad an adjective. How LinkedIn are you became a measure of, oh my gosh, how engaged am I? And they you know, even developed that, that bar that tells you how complete your profile is as a measure of how LinkedIn you were. Viral questions that stick in the mind and questions that get me to rethink what problem I'm solving, to rethink what approach I'm taking. That's what drives word of mouth more than anything else. 
And for our listeners, uh, Josh is is a very credible speaker on LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, Helen Knowlton was the PR agency for for uh, LinkedIn for years, which Josh over saw. And I know also with Blanket Otis, you guys were the first PR agency for Facebook. So very, very uh, deep insight on, on that particular point there. Well, I was just going to say, uh, Roz, to your other question on on the importance of purpose. Um, this is the first year that we asked that question. Um, and so just to, to draw that out, if I may, the importance of purpose uh, in purchasing and deciding who you're going to work with and who you're going to partner with and who you're going to trust, it's a lot more important than than many people realize. Um, it's it's In our experience, it's all too easy for a very busy executive who's got a lot of other things to do and a lot of battles to fight to say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about trying to articulate my purpose or my mission. That's, that's marketing fluff. That's, that's, you know, that's the subject matter of hashtags. I'm going to let that go. But the fact of the matter is that uh, this, this year, this last month, we actually increased the sample size. We talked to 625 us based decision makers on, on where they're going to purchase and only 10% said it had little to no impact. The rest of the 90% said it had varying degrees. The 33% said it had some impact. 38% said it had a lot of impact. And 19% said it was one of the most important factors in deciding who they were going to trust and who they were going to work with. That means one in five of your entire new business pipeline is hinging on whether or not your purpose aligns with theirs. And that makes a lot of sense because, as I said, in a time when fear runs rampant and people make good people make dumb decisions when they're scared, they want to know that ultimately your purpose and their purpose aligns. Yeah, and I, I love the the theme that you kind of keep bringing up that I'm really kind of noodling on and I'm not even sure how I want to go into it. So let's kind of see where we go. It's the, the crux of the redefinition of this buyer-seller relationship, right? Um, your, your, your research is focusing on the technology side and clearly that has a lot of focus, but there's some universal truths, I think, that say, look, mm-hmm. you've got to realize in this fundamental exchange of value between a B2B buyer and a B2B seller that there's just some stuff going on here that is becoming things that redefine define that relationship. So I don't know if there's a couple of nuggets from the research that you would say, look, I don't care what your industry, I don't care what your your vertical is. Um, Things have changed in this functional value exchange between a B2B seller and a B2B buyer. And you just need to get aware of these headlines from the research. I appreciate that, Patrick. Um, And it is true that there are definitely some some universal truths to draw from this. You know, uh, Rob Roy Consulting does work with a number of B2B tech vendors, and we work with a number of uh, organizations and companies outside of technology as well. We work with groups that are interested in driving change. And change is scary, and there's already a lot of fear to go around. Um, But when it comes to purpose, uh, my favorite quote on this comes from Peter Senge, one of the world's most trusted experts on change management an MIT scholar who got into organizational psychology. And Peter Senge says, people don't fear change. People fear being changed. If you can demonstrate to me that I can still hold up to my authentic purpose and all I'm doing is is using a new technology or using a new process or working together in new ways, then you're going to help people through change by showing that there's something that hasn't changed your purpose, 
what you're trying to get done, what you stand for, who you are. And we experience that uh, across all the clientele in and out of technology. We work with uh, companies in energy and healthcare and education. And in fact, one of our uh, one of our companies uh, is actually uh, in the space uh, of utilities, uh, helping uh, rural and distributed utilities uh, modernize their grids. And their entire differentiation is we're here to help your communities thrive. Purpose helps people through change. And if you're clear on why you're going through the pain of change, you can help people through that process so much more. That's one universal truth. And, and that's where that stat on purpose comes through. One out of five people say, help me get clear on purpose and you earn my trust. It's a, it's a big differentiator. You know, several years back, I got asked by a client of ours to, um, to, to teach their selling people more consultative selling. Um, and I asked the question to him, I said, what's the single biggest thing you want your customer to say about you? And invariably everyone raised their hand and said, I want to be trusted. Like I want to be trusted. And, and I had the chief customer officer look at me and said, okay, great. Teach them how to be trusted. I'm like, okay, that's not how this works. Um, but we ultimately broke it down and we said, look, there's a formula for trust. And I'd love your perspective. Um, you know, trust equals your intent which has to be to make the person you're trying to sell to, it has to be their problem you're trying to solve. And I want to connect it to that thing you said before. But it also is your expertise, what you bring to the party that actually makes you valuable. So if your intent is to help that person you're selling to and help them accomplish their goals and you demonstrate expertise that shows that you can actually be credible at helping them solve that, that is a foundational element of trust. So I, I, I'm circling back to that trust thing you talked about before, like what we really learned about the dimensionality of trust in this relationship and how best to lean into it. Sure. Well, so that is at the crux of the study that we ran last year and we revalidated again, you know, this year. It is amazing to us that with all the technologies that are changing, with all the operating systems that are changing, with all the algorithms that are changing, there is one operating system, one set of algorithms that don't change quite as quickly. And that is the algorithms of the human brain. The, the human brain still remains the most powerful and flexible form of computing on the planet, and it has an organic operating system to it. Neuroscience teaches us there are things that the brain does and ways to actually earn trust, ways to kill trust. Two things I would share. The single most practical thing you can do to earn trust is to know when to assert something versus when to ask something. And the research bears this out. If you assert something when you're closest to the truth of it, you're building trust. If you ask something when they're closest to the truth of something, you're earning trust. But if you overpromise or assert or tell someone, here's your problem, here's who you are, here's what you're dealing with, you're overstepping your bounds. You need to ask them, what are you feeling? Um, there is, in fact, an emerging equation of trust that we've discovered. And I'm sure you're familiar. There is a trusted advisor equation that was first put out by David Meister many, many years ago. And it's a, it's a really uh, a tried and true formula. And that formula was that trust equals credibility, yeah, knowing what you're doing, reliability, uh, doing what you say you're going to do. And he called it intimacy, which is just being straight up with what your intentions are and what's in it for you. And the thing that killed trust in that old equation was self-orientation, mm -hmm. making it about you, trying to close too quickly, trying to uh, ask for too much self-promotion. We observe, however, in the post-pandemic environment, that model is evolving because we have learned as a species how connected we are. 
and that it's not just about a one-way projection of trust. The David Meister model um, is still very, very valuable, but it's very self-centric. Am I credible? Am I reliable? Am I being intimate? Am I self-oriented? Ironically, the model itself is self-oriented. What we're learning is that an emerging trust model focuses on we. How are we connecting? What are we learning? And what are we co-creating? And so the new trust equation that we see emerging from the research and our personal experience is instead of credibility, it's curiosity. Am I asking the right questions? What questions is my customer asking? What questions have other successful customers asked? Single most powerful form we see of social media marketing is to say, here are the questions successful organizations are asking. That's curiosity. Instead of reliability, it's not just doing what I say I'm going to do. That does you no good if you say you're going to do the wrong thing. It's about integrity. Yeah. It's about shared integrity. And it's this constant ability to want to learn. I mean, we're seeing that coming out in a lot of our conversations. And, and you talk about the peer element that's come out of the, the research. You mentioned self-orientation being the thing that's killing trust these days. Yes. And, you know, it really is, and, it's, and I don't want to make everything about the pandemic, but it's changed the world so much now. And I think that's such a big thing that so many leaders are learning now. You know, you used to have to know it all. Now, to be a good leader, you almost have to not know it all because the world is moving so fast. You need to be open to, as your research says, speaking to peers, open to learning every day. And yeah. how are you taking this element and the insights that you're getting from this, you know, what you're seeing with this peer council and people being more open to this vulnerability. How are you going to take that now with your clients? Like what is your advice to our listeners on, you know, how will you take your teams through those change? How will you take yourself as a leader through those change? Because you've got to give yourself a talking to and say, actually, I need to lead in a different way now. And then also, you need to take your team along this journey to say, the world's different now. And if we want to activate change, because one of the things we do talk about in Change Cultivators a lot is not responding to change, but activating. It's not a destination, it's a journey. And it really right. is about living in this culture of change all the time. And we're entering a new season now, um, you know, particularly with having to open your network, learn, ask more questions, ask for advice. What's your uh, nuggets on how a leader can really move themselves and their teams through this change? Well, there's a few. There's, there's so much there. Uh, the, the first thing that I would actually um, respectfully challenge, I have a different point of view on, is the notion that the pandemic has changed the world. I don't know that that's entirely true. I think the pandemic has revealed the world. I think the pandemic has accelerated a number of people's plans already. I mean, prior to the pandemic, the vast majority of organizations surveyed said that they were already engaged in some sort of form of digital transformation. You know, that became center square on buzzword bingo for two years in a row, right? Was, <laughs> was dig digital transformation. Um, and the top barriers to that were, I don't actually have a plan. I don't have the right talent. And I actually don't know why I'm doing it. That aside, we were all trying to change. <laughs> um, but necessity is the mother of invention. And, uh, and what I see is that the pandemic has actually laid bare what's really going on in the world because we all have to move fast and, and we don't have time uh, for distraction. And I think what we're laying bare is actually the fear, the fear that we all feel. Uh, to close out on, on the trust equation, 
the biggest thing that we see uh, of, of everything is actually empathy. Uh, the need for empathy and to understand and have compassion for what your customers are going through. So just to start with that, you also said it's about not just responding, but but activating and being proactive. Uh, I would say what the pandemic has revealed is that we weren't even responding. We were instinctively reacting. We weren't always choosing our response to the pressures we were under, that fear of failure, uh, that fear of 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 not actually getting done what we want to get done, that fear of we don't really know what we're doing has kept us as uh, as a species in a state of reaction. And so to come to the point, Roz, the single most important thing, as you so rightly called out, is I have to give myself a talking to. And the first question to ask, the first question to ask is what am I afraid of? People often talk about fear as the enemy. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dune, and there's that prayer of the Bene Gesserit, you know, fear is the mind killer. Uh, and uh, with all respect to that incredible franchise, I disagree. Fear is data. Fear is information. It's whether or not we choose to respond to that fear in an enlightened way, in an intentional way, or if we choose to respond to fear in a reactive way. So you have to ask yourself, what am I really afraid of? And asking yourself that question will lead you back to your purpose. In my case, I asked myself that question at the beginning of this year. Rob Roy Consulting took a hit like any other organization this year. And for a few months in a row, our revenues were at a fraction of what they used to be. And I had a choice. Uh, I could have decided to lay some people off on our team. I could have looked to reduce pay. But I stopped and I asked myself, what am I afraid of? And what I was most afraid of was not being able to help our clients. I was afraid of not being able to be useful. That's my biggest fear. And that led me to a decision. The purpose of Rob Roy Consulting is to help people who are in tough situations avoid dumb decisions. And we're better served if we have more people doing that. And so because of that examination, um, my wife and I had a very tough conversation and we decided to reduce my compensation as an investment in the company. And I'm happy to report we haven't had to lay anybody off and our revenues are now above what they were uh, before the pandemic. But it was that question, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of not being useful. That led to purpose, that led to a business decision, that led to growth. It's so, you know, one of the threads that's come up in a lot of these conversations is, um, and so I'm going to get off the topic of the research and stuff, but I'll kind of go at the heart of what you just said is, um, good leaders in change have a very solid, authentic vision of self would be how I would say it, right? There is an introspection that actually seems to be a required element to be able to thrive and bring teams through change. Because if you don't have this innate sense of self, you actually can't cope with the disruption that's happening with you, or you can't cope with it in a way that's beneficial and productive for people. So as I hear you say that, I'm kind of back to that notion of, you know, a self-reflected leader who is actually has a strong sense of self, a strong sense of identity. You use the word purpose, right? What you stand for. But um, it, it's such a interesting lesson that we're kind of hearing threaded through a number of these conversations. So I, 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 love that you brought it up and it's such a personal thing and i love you sharing it that way too so thank you for that i i appreciate the acknowledgement um it's it it is down truly though to a team effort um you know we have uh some amazing people that, that work on our team 
Uh, we have a creative director who's formerly of Intel, who's able to bring ideas to life visually. We also have uh, a woman named Gurian Tai, and her title is Senior Associate and Fear Technician. <laughs> she has done so much work on the neuroscience of fear and uh and i owe uh, our perspectives on that i have to give credit where credit is due to to gurian and and whereas chris is able to take immense amounts of information from these studies and crystallize them down into immediately understandable visuals gurian is able to take immense amounts of data that are coming to us from fear and help us see the conclusions on the other side. Fear is not our enemy. Fear mm. is an informer. Fear is a teacher if we're willing to have the courage to learn the lesson. Yeah, yeah and I, th I think Simon Sinek says it, and he kind of steals the quote you used earlier, and he adapts it. But you know, I think he says people aren't afraid of change. Um, they're just afraid of being uncomfortable. Right. It's this notion of saying, you know, it's not a fear of change. People just like the status quo. They like comfort. And anything that prods them out of comfort, they have to embrace to some degree. And that's a fearful moment, right? Anything you move from being a comfortable space to an uncomfortable space, there's probably fear associated with that. So, oh my gosh, I want to do an entire conversation on fear because I, it's such an interesting thing to play with as you talk about organizations coping with disruption. Well, and, yeah, Josh, and, and we, we had a, a lady called Cassandra Worthy on in October. Um, mm. I don't know if you managed to catch it, but I just love, I love you saying, you know, fears data. Cassandra speaks about emotions, our greatest gift, and it signals our greatest moment. And fear, negative energies, what fuels our growth. So I definitely think looking at change in that light, which is, as you say, fear is not necessarily a bad thing. Fear is my emotion rising, which means change is coming. And how do I deal with it? You step back, step out of the situation. And it doesn't always have to be a negative thing. No, it doesn't. And all of those impulses and instincts that we have, they're, they're coming from some algorithm in the human brain. And it, again, there's so much that modern neuroscience has, has to teach us about things that we've known for a long time. It, we used to say that we only use 10% of our brain. Uh, and we've since learned that that's not true. My father's a, is a neuroscientist, he's a neurosurgeon. And he'd tell you that if you woke up tomorrow with 90% of your brain missing, you would probably have a bad day. <laughs> uh, the truth of the matter is that we can only see, we're only aware of 10% of our thought. The other 90%, there's still a lot of math going on back there. It's just behind a curtain. It's in a black box. And there are a number of human algorithms that are now being mapped out by modern uh, social neuroscientists. And one of those is intuition. That feeling that I, I know this, I, I, I have a gut that there's something here. And that intuition is the result of a lot of math going on behind the curtain. But the single most important algorithm is curiosity. The algorithm that says, I can't tell you why, but this is worth exploring. And truly being able to find the most valuable question. You talked earlier about, you know, what is it that we can do to earn trust? The learning center of the brain is connected to the pleasure center. And what is it that I want my customers to say about me? I want them to say, I feel smarter after I talk with Rob Roy Consulting, I feel smarter. Not that Rob Roy is the smartest people out there. I feel smarter because I'm exploring a more valuable question. And so curiosity, compassion, and courage are our top values. 
Very, very cool. I have a couple of things I want to circle back around to, some that might become lightning round dish, and you may decide not to answer, but I'm just fascinated by some of the discussion. So I'll go there and you can say no. Um, but the first one's fairly the first one's fairly easy. Any other good headlines that you think from this research that you're like, I, I the change cultivators listeners just need to hear this. Like we we learned this and it's something important that should have an implication for somebody who's listening. So any one or two headline nuggets that you think are really, really clarifying or interesting or in any other way you think it's important to share with our listeners, I'll turn the floor over to you for that. Yes, absolutely. Number one is talk about your mistakes. Make it your job to accelerate your customer's learning curve. Everyone is is on a on a treadmill of change. Uh, everyone's going through a journey of change. Help them learn from the mistakes of those that have come before. Be honest about what the what your technology does not do. Be honest about how it might be used wrong and help them accelerate their learning curve. That will earn you trust faster than anybody else. Perfect, perfect. And your, your voice raised and you got more forceful on that. So clearly you feel passionate about that particular one. So I love it. And I, I want to I give you a chance to go back to this notion of, of a peer council and peer sharing and how it's more important to ask folks. And frankly, it's more of a proprietary question for me. I, I have the pleasure of emceeing and running an industry share group, um, which is executives in the, the consumer goods space and the retail space, but it bridges business to technology. So what, we have a lot of people in this group, right? And the reason to get together is to do exactly what you're saying. What are the big challenges? What are the big problems to solve? Can we get our heads around them? How can we learn from each other? So what nuggets in the research say, you know, given COVID, given shifts, this is more important. Um, and these are some implications as you think about making decisions on what to do going forward. Sure. Again, I would say that in in the post-pandemic world, 79% of the people we talked to said that I am actually talking to my peers about what problems to solve and how to define them. What the heck am I dealing with? And so the big takeaway there is don't jump ahead to solution. I don't care what industry you're in. Don't jump ahead to solution. Listen First, to what that person thinks their problem is. Uh, you know, the good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth. We should use them in that proportion. And that is the path to figuring out what's valuable to do. The only thing, I'll say it again, the only thing worse than the wrong answer is the right answer to the wrong question. Take your time to talk with your peers about the right problem to solve. And if you're selling something or you're offering a solution, Drive the discussion around what it is that needs to be solved before you jump into how awesome your solution is. Perfect, perfect. Roz, I've got one really random last question, but I don't want to make sure I'm jumping ahead. So go ahead. I know you have things you want right, to fire no, away Patrick, to as well. You go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. Well, so we, we brought up a couple of words that were kind of swimming in my head, um, Josh. Um, you keep using algorithms, which I love. You brought up trust, and then you brought up big tech companies. So it's totally making me go to the social dilemma Netflix movie, right? Which is this mm. notion of how how they how that came to life. And uh, and, and again, this is this is the question you could choose not to answer. By the way, um, so a are you familiar with that piece, right? The social dilemma. And given your history and you know what you've done in that space, do you have any thoughts or commentary on it? So I told you it would be random, and I also gave you the chance to say no. I'm familiar with the social dilemma, and I have a uh, a very strong point of view on this. There is, I, I do talk about 
organic algorithms a lot. I am the son of a neuroscientist and a neurosurgeon, and uh, it was dinner conversation a lot. So (laughs) a a, a forced language to learn. Here's, Here's probably the single biggest threat that I think our species faces right now is this organic algorithm called confirmation bias. When you believe something is true, the data that says that you're right shows up in your brain at a faster measurable speed and a higher measurable voltage than data that suggests you're wrong. Data that challenges your point of view just feels untrue on a biochemical level, and that is dangerous and terrifying. This also explains Fox and CNN. There are artificial intelligence engines in place at many news networks that know what we read, what we agree with, what we like, what we share, what we comment on. They have documented what we think probably better than we have. They've mapped that out. They're monetizing that. We are addicted to our own opinions. You think the opioid crisis was a big deal? It is nothing compared to how we're being peddled the lie that we're right. But there is thankfully one algorithm, one fail-safe mechanism that is just a little bit stronger and a little bit faster than confirmation bias. And that is the algorithm of curiosity. Social neuroscientists describe it as FOMO for the brain, fear of missing out for the brain. Hey, what's that over there? And if you can convince someone, not that they're wrong, but if you can convince someone, hey, you missed a piece of the puzzle. Here, look at this piece and you redo your math. Curiosity can momentarily pause that confirmation bias loop and get people to rethink their position. And it's even more effective when you tie that new piece of information to their core purpose. And that's so powerful, right? If we think about our listeners who are kind of leading business teams along the way, this notion of consciously and proactively pushing back against confirmation bias, right? When disruption happens, you can't say, no, 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 this is validating the way I used to think about it. You've got to pause. And I love your wrap around that is curiosity, right? You have to start any one of these things. So I'm literally threading the brilliance of all of this that you're saying in my head, right? Um, Fight back against confirmation bias. Be curious, but not curious in a random way. Be curious by framing the problem to be solved and addressed, and then be opening to new inputs and new, new, new data points and insights that actually might have you come out on the other side, being more successful to deal with the disruption. So the, no, that, the, the brilliance yeah, of what you just said is so crystallizing to me. Thank you. And it's all about being self-aware, right? Because you can get into this treadmill of, as you say, I'm seeing what I want to see. And you, there's so much stuff being fed to you all the time. So you, you just subconsciously block out what you don't want to see. And and as you say, you've got to, and I say this again, you've got to get up in the morning and have a talk to yourself to say, I need to be curious. I need to be thinking of other perspectives. I can't just be on this treadmill all the time because the world is taking me downstream, you know, and either I put on those flippers and swim in a different direction or not. And it's it's about being intentional with your day, with That's your right. life, with your mind, um, and, and really how you take uh, yourself and your teams forward because we are just getting carried in the current now, in many, that, many that ways. Is, that is, no, Roz, what, and forgive me for, for, for uh, intruding on that one, but it just it resonates with, with, with me so strongly, both as a business leader and as a father, the most sacred thing we have is choice. And any technology, any trend, any organization that, that threatens that choice, uh, that deserves a second look. And, and we've known about this for so long. Mark Twain wrote, 
a couple hundred years ago, he wrote, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for certain that just ain't so. And so we've known these things. Our intuition has been trying to tell us all along, hey, take a look behind that curtain back here at the other 90%. There's a richness of information back here. Don't always believe the headlines that your own brain is feeding you. And as to curiosity, Isaac Asimov uh, was the one that nailed it when he said, the phrase that heralds the greatest scientific discovery is not Eureka, I found it, but hmm, that's weird. <laughs> it's our curiosity and our compassion that will save us. I, I, I keep, and, and, and that will save our businesses as well. Understand why smart people are doing dumb things when they're scared. Help them think through that fear, find the better question, and you'll pull ahead. Yeah, and this comes this comes out. Sorry, Patrick. Okay. This comes out um, in a lot of you know the CEOs we talk to, uh, and you know the people that counsel very senior people is the need to step out of your day to day life because it's got so fast. You downstream and you don't even have time to think. And I love the word. It's one of my favorite words is intentional. You've got to be intentional about everything, your job, your life, your family, you know, where your mind is each day. And I think if you are just getting up in the morning, running with the day without actually taking those five, 10 minutes to go for a walk or to step back or to take, you know, five hours a week to just not work and get out of work you lose that ability to think intentionally. And I think that's what it's really becoming is what are my values? What do I stand for? What's important to me? And am I sticking to those, you know, or am I being dragged, you know, along what everybody else wants me to do? And we, we spoke to a wonderful woman called Ellen Windermith who talks about getting out of your flow. Um, and she says, the minute you're out of your flow as a person, you stop being effective in life. And I think this all links into the, the conversation we're having here. So, I think, Josh, that's been a fantastic conversation with you today. It's been absolutely amazing. Where can our listeners go to find the report and the research data that is going live today? Thank you, Roz. Uh, well, you can go to www.robroyconsulting.com. Uh, that's R-O-B-R-O-Y consulting.com slash perspectives. And uh, as you mentioned, it's hot off the press. It's being posted today. Uh, and uh, we will share an executive summary with anyone who wants to see it. Great. And your contact details are on the website as well if anyone has any questions around that. So to our listeners, I'm sure um, this has been a great bit of insight and, and hopefully some super exciting data to go tap into uh, that goes live today. And Josh, thank you for sharing with our listeners. I think it's so beautiful that curiosity purpose and courage being brave as well as curious is so important as we we navigate through the day-to-day -day world of change which uh, it's now becoming the norm so josh thank you so much it's been great to have you on the show thank you very much thank you josh that was awesome we keep going can we just keep going no. so many other things like